Go Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 45. We'll read verses 1 to 15. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Amen. In the previous chapter, the brothers of Joseph have returned to Egypt, and they have this dilemma about the brother and what to do and how to go back and what they're going to say to their father if they do go back. But before any of that happens, Joseph, their brother, reveals himself to them because he understands their sincerity their genuine heart, their humble heart, and their concern for their father and for one another. He has tested them thus far from chapters 42 to 44. He has tested them on a couple of occasions, and they have passed the test. They are behaving like honest and true men, sincere men. So keeping that in mind, that's why he could not control himself because he realizes his brothers are different now they have overcome their sins. <coughs> so then, chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He couldn't control his emotions. He was keeping a very circumspect and dispassionate view on them in order to maintain this test that he was presenting to them about their honesty. But at this point, when he realizes this, he is not able to control his emotions 
in front of all the people. So he asks for them to be dismissed. Verse 1, have everyone go out from me. And the reason for this is probably he did not want to be so emotional in front of them and also for his brothers to know that with him there alone and without any interpreter or anyone else to give him assistance, he was going to speak to them in their native tongue, in the Hebrew language, and not use an interpreter. Earlier, he had been using an interpreter to keep a distance between him and his brothers so that his brothers would not discover that it was actually their brother Joseph on the throne. And even Joseph would not have likely been called by the name Joseph among the court officials. He would have had his Egyptian name, the one that was given to him by Pharaoh in Genesis 41, 45. He would have been called Zaphonath Paneah or some shortened form of that name. But likely not Joseph. But now he has everyone leave and then Joseph makes himself known to his brothers because now it's time for reconciliation. The way that he's been dealing with them in the past is going to be different now that that he reveals himself to them. So firstly, his uncontrollable emotions, which are good emotions, compassionate emotions concerning his brother and family. Verse 2, And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. They heard it in the neighboring rooms, wherever, in the building, in the palace, and he could not stop that from happening. So, when they hear of it, likely they're going to inquire and figure out, and there needs to be an explanation, which explanation happens later on. So then, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And remember, no interpreter here. He would have said this in the Hebrew language. I am Joseph. They would then need to uh, identify the voice with the face and the clothing and the circumstance and see through all of that and recognize that this actually was Joseph. Is my father still alive? That's his first and foremost concern because... His mother had died. His mother, Rachel, had died. And remember, his only brother of the father and mother were Benjamin. These other brothers are his half-brothers from Jacob, their father. Verse 3, But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They couldn't answer him because they were dismayed. They're not joyful. They are, at first, Dismayed, discouraged. And why? Because the moment they know it's Joseph, it reminds them of their sin and crime of earlier years. It reminds them of that incident. So that's why they are dismayed. So far, he has been stern with them. He has tested them. He has not trusted them. At least openly, he has not trusted them. So they would naturally be dismayed. That now this man in authority has the power to punish them. Correct? But he says that, but he's not going to do that. He changes his tone and changes changes his approach. Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, 
Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, more confirmation that this is Joseph, and also confirmation that he wants to be kind to them and compassionate to them. Come closer. If he were at a distance, a few feet away, because he's on the throne, coming closer would help them to identify him even more, but also even later for them to be able to weep on each other and also to kiss each other. That is the intention here. So the confirmation that it is Joseph and the Joseph that you sold into (laughs) Egypt. He says this as a fact. It is a fact. But he's not saying it at this point to heap condemnation on them, but to remind them of what they did wrongfully, but also how God is using it or God has used it to overcome their evil. That's the reason he's mentioning it. He's not mentioning it to condemn them, though they did deserve condemnation, a punishment for doing it. Now he's repeating this so that they are reminded of what they did, and yet God uh, circumvented that. God was stronger than they. God's will stronger than their will, which is verses 5 to 9. In verses 5 to 9, he's going to stress that fact, that God's will, God's purposes are stronger than theirs, and the good God can subvert the evil will of man. Also, the free will of God, (laughs) the free will of God is stronger than the so-called free will of man. There is no absolute free will of man in the sense that man's will is independent of the will of God. That man's will is able to function without any influence or any ordination from God himself. That view of free will is not a biblical view. It's a heretical view of man's free will because it makes... Man, God, by being stronger than God. So it's idolatry. Then, verse 5. And now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. They ought to, in, in a normal situation, in a previous context, they ought to be grieved or angry with themselves. They should have had that Remorse, that sorrow, that repentance. They should have had that before. He's assuming here that they have experienced that. That's why now they are not malicious and violent men anymore. They are humble and sincere and honest men now. Because you sold me here. Now is not the time to be beating yourself over the back, whipping yourself that you did this. Now is not the time. Now is the time to understand God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. Did they sell him? Yes. He says so in verse 5 and earlier in verse 4. They did sell him. He's not denying that fact, but he's stressing the fact that God has used it God sent me before you to preserve life. To preserve life. Whose life? 
not only the life of the Egyptians and the surrounding nations, but especially the life of the clan of Jacob. Because if Jacob's clan does not survive, then Christ will not come into the world and die for our sins. He has to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Perez, so forth, all the way down to David and then to Christ himself. This is the way it has to be. So preserving life, he speaks of it generally, but it entails all of the above. The Egyptians, surrounding nations, the clan of Jacob, the family of, or first family of Judah, then the tribe of Judah, and so forth, all the way down to the first coming of Christ. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Two years so far, and five years to come. Well, this helps us date this to the lifetime of Joseph. This would have been when Joseph was 39 years old. When he discloses himself to his brothers here, it would have been at the age of 39. Let's review some of the age and the dates of Joseph's life. In 37, 37 verse 2, it says, Joseph was 17 years of age when he was pasturing the flock. He was 17 in Genesis 37, verse 2. Then he is sold, by the end of that chapter, sold as a slave and sent to Egypt, carried to Egypt. But then by the time he is on the throne in Genesis 41, Genesis 41, 46, it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 4146, he is then 30 years old. And what did he declare as the interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh? That he would, or that they would all experience first seven years of famine, I'm sorry, seven years of plenty, abundance, and then seven years of famine. So there would be a strategic period in Egypt's Egypt's history of 14 years. First of plenty, then of famine. Seven plus seven. Well, seven years of plenty had already arrived. It came and went. And Joseph prepared the people for that by storing up grain. Preparing the people. Those seven years had already passed. Now he says in 45 verse 6 that... These two years have been a a period of famine, which means now 30 plus 7 and then 37 plus 2. He's 39 years old. In the first 17 years of his life, he has some ups and downs. The greatest downer was the loss of his mother. But then when he was 17, he was sold as a slave. And from 17 to 30, he basically had misery as a slave and also falsely accused, thrown into prison. Correct? So he does not have the best of circumstances. However, by the time he's 30, he's the ruler of Egypt, the governor of Egypt. 
correct? Second to Pharaoh. But when did he die? And how long was he the ruler of Egypt? Look at Genesis 50, Genesis 50, 22 to 26. Genesis 50, verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Though he had 30 years of difficulties, he had the the remainder of his life, for the next 80 years, he lived in luxury, in blessing, for 80 years. 30 years of suffering, 80 years of plenty and luxury. 30 and then 80. Joseph. It doesn't always happen that way with God's people, but it is significant. It is significant that this is a type and a lesson for us that suffering comes first, glory comes second. Right. Suffering first, glory second. We'll speak more of that later. Then, chapter 45, verse 7, 7 to 9. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. He repeats the fact that God sent him in advance to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. To preserve a remnant in the earth. God uh, could have done this in many other ways anyway. But he chose to do it this way to set an example of how if God doesn't choose the man he wants to save or deliver the earth, then it's not going to happen. God has to choose the right man, just as God has to choose the right man, Christ. God has appointed him. He appointed him to uh, be the judge of all the earth, Acts 17, 31. Then, verses 7 to 9 stress the fact that God sent him in advance. God's will is greater than than man's will. And God knows what he's doing. (laughs) We also have to attribute wisdom to God's will. Amen. Not foolishness to it, but wisdom to it. Foolishness to our will, wisdom to God's will. Further, verse 8, he calls himself uh, father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household. Father to Pharaoh. 
He does not mean a literal father to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was already alive and Pharaoh was the one who appointed him. He means it in some symbolic way, in some other way. He means it in the sense that he is the teacher of Pharaoh and he is the one who is caring for Pharaoh's household and his kingdom. The one who cares for Pharaoh and the one who teaches Pharaoh. That's how he means it in this case. Um, to confirm this fact, Psalm 105, verse 22. Psalm 105, 22. It's not, it's not possible to conceive that a man of God, a prophet of God, would keep his mouth shut as to the truth. But that whatever truth needed to be expressed, he would have announced it to those around him. And it says in Psalm 105, 22, this context is mostly about Joseph and Israel in Egypt in verses 16 to 24. And it says in verse 22, well, well let's start at um, 20, verse 20, 20 to 22. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him Lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Pharaoh made Joseph Lord of his house, the ruler, the custodian, the guardian of his house to make sure everything in the household of Pharaoh in his dynasty, everything was running smoothly, just like he did in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard in Genesis 39, and just like he did in the prison at the end of Genesis 39, when he was thrown into prison, the, the jailer soon recognized that Joseph was a diligent, honest, industrious young man and could put him in charge of all the other prisoners. And Pharaoh also heard of all this and makes him lord of his house or steward, guardian of his house. But also, in, in 22, that he might teach his elders wisdom. He's a teacher. Teacher of the elders of Egypt, the wisdom of God. Right. That's Joseph. In that sense, he is a father to Pharaoh. He taught Pharaoh the, the correct interpretation of his dreams and whatever other matters that came up after that, and all the rest of the elders and officials of Egypt. Joseph was the teacher of them. Verse, uh, verses 9 and following, instructions to Joseph's father, Jacob. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. The message from Joseph, God has made me Lord, yeah. our God. Yeah. <laughs> He not only controls what happens in the clan of Jacob 
or in the land of Canaan, but also what happens in the land of Egypt, because he's the God of all the earth. And so God is the one who made him Lord of all Egypt. That's one. Two, come down and don't delay. Come down, do not delay. Come quickly, because there's five years left and you need to be protected. Live in the land of Goshen. In Exodus chapter 1, it's also called land of Ramesses. Uh, That's likely the name of one of the pharaohs of a previous generation. So that was a fertile land. It was a good land. It was near the land of Canaan and Arabia being south of Canaan. So it was in the northeastern part, mostly north, but also northeastern part of the land of Egypt in a fertile area. Very, uh, it was adjacent or near the land uh, or the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea, just north of it, and the Nile and all of its um, outlets were there in the land of Goshen. So it was a very good place to live. Better than other places in Egypt, unless it was along the Nile. So he invites him to come live there in a good place, and likely a place that they would have heard about in Canaan and Arabia. So it wouldn't have been a strange place, but a familiar place, at least by name and by reputation, if they had not actually seen it. So the instruction is for everyone to come, everyone and all their animals to come. Now, at this point, we have to ask, what would have been going on in the mind of Joseph, which later, once Jacob hears this, Jacob also has to be thinking about this. Why go into the land of Egypt? It would have been a confirmation of what God said in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be in a strange land, would be enslaved, and then later delivered. And this is the beginning of it. This is the beginning. Genesis 45 will set the stage for it. And so let's pick it up at Genesis 15, 15, 12. We'll read 15, uh, 12 to 16. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Canaanites' iniquities had not been completed. So God is predicting here that Abraham's descendants will go to a strange land, and that is now the land of Egypt, clearly said here. They will be enslaved and oppressed in that land, but not initially because of Joseph. But after Joseph dies, as Exodus 1 says, that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Pharaoh, 
nor all the good that he did to the land of Egypt. A new Pharaoh arises and did not know. So then oppression, slavery starts. But Joseph, at the end of Genesis 50, did he not also intimate that they would not be staying there in Egypt? He told his brothers in Genesis 50, 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Joseph, he knew that their sojourn was a sojourn, that Jacob and his family's time in Egypt was temporary. And then God would take them out or deliver them from there and give them the land of Canaan. And he also made instructions, made them swear by the instructions about his bones, right? Well, they knew that. All of this was communicated through the godly line because in Exodus 13, 19, when Moses delivers them, delivers Israel out of Egypt. Exodus 13, 19, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Carry the bones of Joseph out of Egypt. Why? Not because there was anything superstitiously favorable to being buried in Canaan, but it was a symbol, a sign of their faith. Their faith in what Canaan represented. It represented heavenly Canaan and the resurrected, glorified life in the heavenly Canaan, in heaven. That's why he gave that instruction, to see if they would believe that or not. Okay, 45, 12 to 15. 45, 12 says, And behold... Your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. Evidence here. Eyewitness evidence. How many brothers does he have? He has 11 brothers, right? So 11 men with their two eyes and their two ears are seeing and hearing their own brother. He says there, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, who would be more familiar with his brother Joseph, being raised for a few years in the same family, right? So they all see there's ample testimony that Joseph is speaking to them, their brother. Not any fake or any, any imposter. So then, to encourage the father, you must tell my father of all my splendor and all that you have seen. You have to tell him that to encourage him to come, that this is actually the case. 
There is good provision, and God has well provided for us to motivate him to come. And hurry again, bring my father down here. That's how much he longed to see him and be with him. Further, 14 and 15, they fall on one another's neck and cry. They weep aloud and they kiss each other. And then they talk to each other. Catch up on all the years, all the years of separation. Genuine compassion and kindness, concern, love for each other. They're showing it now, which did not exist Previously, when he was 17 and before age 17, it did not exist. Now it exists. And it's not being done because the brothers are looking at the situation and trying to exploit the situation. Joseph sees through that. He knows the brothers are not in that frame of mind. They are in the right frame of mind. And that's why they're falling on each other's neck, weeping and kissing each other and talking in a friendly, kind way toward each other. Let me, uh, let me reiterate a few points here that we've made. One point is on the free will of God. People like to speak of the free will of man, but we have to turn that around and speak of the free will of God. Because the free will of man makes man the king, the Lord, the God of his own life, the master of his own life, the ruler of his own life. But there can only be one ultimate ruler. Right. Only one. Joseph, he understands this point very well. He repeats it before he dies in Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. When the free will proponents, when they think about free will, they think that they are wise and that they are good and that their view of their will has only their good in mind and the good of others in mind. So when they think that way they discount and actually negate the fact that God is the one who is wiser than they and he's better than they or more righteous or more good than they are. Because that's what it says here. God meant it for good. Just like in chapter 45. God meant it for good. God's will is a good will. Our will is not a good will. God's will is a free will. Our will is not free. Further, can we establish that there is no God above God? Because if we can establish that there is no God above God, then He is the most supreme. He is the supreme one. And there is no one to whom He has to report. God is not a slave of anyone above Him. A previous God. He's not a slave to a previous God. He's not a servant to a previous God. He's not a created God 
who is subservient to a previous God who created him. Nor are we, we who are created beings, superior to God who created us. Because God is uncreated, we are created. God is eternal, we are temporal. We had a beginning in time. Yes, we'll live forever, either in heaven or hell, but we don't have an eternal origin. For these reasons, God, the only true and living God, is superior to us. There's no one above him. Let's see Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4, 35. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. He is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. In heaven and on earth, there is no other God, no other true God. Right. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, 10, Isaiah 43, verse 10. Actually, let's start at verse 8. We'll read 8 to 13. Isaiah 43, 8. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it. No one. No one was created uh, before him, and no one will be created after him. No God, that is. Because that which has to be created, or is created, by definition is not God. By definition is not God. Christ taught that there was only one God. In Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, Verses 28 to 34. 28 to 34. Christ and one of the unbelieving scribes agree. They agree on these points. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The unbelieving scribe and Christ agree that there is only one true and living God. But why is that significant? Why is that significant? Because he only deserves our whole heart, our love. He's the only one who deserves it. And if we do love him, we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. Right. And we'll understand the difference between rituals and true love and obedience toward our neighbor and love for God. Correct? Mm-hmm. That's significant. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. This is eternal life. So if we don't have the true God, we don't believe in him, then we don't have eternal life. Amen. And the only way to know him is through Jesus Christ. Right. Now, having established that there is no one above God, how about the fact that his will is a free will? God's will is a free will. God is not bound by anyone or anything. God is not bound by us. We do not control him. He controls us. We don't tell him what to do. He tells us what to do. We don't ask him to obey us. We obey him. Whether that is done secretly and mysteriously, without the eyes of faith, or with the eyes of faith, or even openly in his revealed word. However his will is accomplished, his will is supreme. Let's look at Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 1. 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 16.4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Chapter 20, Proverbs 20.24, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? Right. 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's our territory, right? Yeah. Pharaoh, Joseph... And others, God is so strong, he's stronger than the strongest of kings. 
And not only that, but he is the one who appoints the strongest and highest of earthly kings. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. (laughs) Daniel the prophet teaches him. Daniel 4.17. 4.17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. (laughs) Verse 25. Verse 25. That you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 32 repeats the same and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar was returning, uh, returned to sanity because of God, when he returned to sanity after seven years, what did he acknowledge? Right. Unbelieving Nebuchadnezzar, what did he acknowledge? 434. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Amen. Unbelieving Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this truth. But it's not just coming from the mouth of an unbeliever, because we saw from the mouth of a believer in Proverbs 16. But also it's a New Testament doctrine. A New Testament doctrine, such as Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Right. Like Joseph. He causes everything to work together for good. And the fact that God's will is supreme over man's will. Romans 9, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. This is all God. God's will is is supreme, God's will is wise, and we should submit to it. We should gladly submit to it and believe in it. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.